Heavenly Father, as we are in your presence this morning, thank you for this beautiful place of sanctuary that we can call you and you are our cornerstone. And some lives here may be in a storm. And let us realize each and every day that you are our solid rock in every storm, in every veil. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity that we have to hear you speak to us personally this morning. We come with open hearts and minds, getting a new and fresh revelation of you through your servant, Dr. Jody Cross. We thank you for him and ask that you give him boldness and a fresh anointing. Holy Spirit, let the anointing words and thoughts come from you. Lift the veil. Transform us as you speak from one degree of glory to another and change our hearts and our lives forevermore. In Jesus' holy and wonderful and precious name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are on a journey together this morning, and uh, to the D-Men students, uh, I celebrate the beginning of your journey. It was in May of 2007 in lovely Charlotte, North Carolina, where I began my journey, and I remember uh, just be beginning and being with my cohort, uh, and uh, so what a, what a great a joy it is to, to be with you this morning. All of us uh, continue to learn and continue to press in to know more of God. I want to thank the students from the 0671 class that have been taking part this morning in leading the chapel with me. It's good to have all of them and those who are here who weren't taking part this morning. We've had a good day and a half together so far. I also want to thank Hiram Joseph, who is a friend who lives in the area. And I called him up a couple of days ago. I said, what are you doing Tuesday? And he said he was available, so here he is. So. Hiram and I have had many opportunities to minister together over the years, and uh, thanks for coming as well and being part of uh, praising the Lord together. I first stepped into this building in 1988. Uh, there was a, a woman who I was kind of interested in, and she was living on the sixth floor. Uh, she was my girlfriend at the time, and just a few months uh, later we would be engaged, and toward the end of 1988 we would be married. She was doing her master's certificate, and it was my first time in the building a few years later, I would walk into these uh, doorways to do intensives like you're doing. And in 1993, our family, my wife, Alexandra, and our six-week-old son, Jordan, moving, uh, moved to Newmarket, where I began my full-time MDiv studies. And they were uh, two great years of my life. You're saying, how did you do your MDiv in two years? Well, I had some intensives behind my, my, my belt or under my belt before then. This morning, we are gathered as servants of Christ, seeking to be nourished by God's word and to be better equipped uh, as his servants to serve him in the places that he calls us to. I want to direct our attention to Ephesians chapter 1. If you've brought a Bible with you, we're going to look at the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Worship is responding to the greatness of God. Here's what Paul says in the opening verses of Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
At the outset of this letter, in verse 3, uh, we find something very surprising that Paul does. He begins in a typical manner, uh, offering a traditional eulogy, which typically uh, was a one-sentence blessing. An Old Testament example had 35 words in English. But what we find here in verse 3, as Paul begins this eulogy, we find that he gets a little bit carried away. A typical 35-word English eulogy turns out to be, in these verses, 242 words long. He doesn't stop at verse 3. He goes on and on and on, all the way to the end of verse 14. It seems like Paul is getting carried away in wonder, love, and praise. And that's what worship is, and that's what worship does. It's as if Paul is saying, I'm going to start blessing and praising my God, and he gets started, but he can't stop. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What happens after that is this mini-sermon before the sermon. And so some of those blessings, those seven or so nuggets that follow in those verses are things like this. The Bible says, he writes, that we were chosen in him to be holy. And he camps and he stops. He says, wow, we were predestined for adoption. He praises God. He said, we, are, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We are, uh, we've been obtained, or we have obtained an inheritance. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. I remember at my uh, MDiv graduation address, Dr. Bill McRae spoke these words. He said, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. A life that doesn't take time to look up at the night sky, a life that doesn't stop and take the time to look at a spring flower that's opening up, A life that doesn't stop to reflect on every spiritual blessing in Christ and to ponder the greatness of God and the glory of God in the cross of Christ is a life that will not bear much fruit. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Psalm 112 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied or pondered by all who delight in them. And Paul was someone who pondered, who studied, who reflected deeply in his maybe desert experience in Arabia, in prison cells, on the blessings of God in Christ. He begins this this chapter with these words, blessed be the God and Father. Another translation says, praise be to the God and Father. Paul was a man who deeply loved God, deeply loved Christ, because he had reflected deeply on the glory of God in Christ. So what we see here is a clear connection between how we sing and what we sing and why we sing and how we worship, and our understanding of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign. Put another way, you could say it like this. It's what Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 7. One who loves much is one who has been forgiven much. Out of the remembrance, out of the reflection, out of the considering of who God is and what he's done for us, We will worship passionately. Worship is responding to the greatness of God in Christ Jesus. As Paul reflects on these things, and he says, when I think about what he's done for me, and you know who he was in his past, I have to respond to him in praise. And in our class, one of the things we're talking about this week is what good corporate worship is. So I would use a number of words. Things like passionate, intelligent, biblical, overflowing, enthusiastic, authentic. These words 
are true of us as worshipers when they flow from serious contemplation of God's self-revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's what John Stott said. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. The true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. So we know this morning that theology fuels passionate worship. That's the first point. Second thing I want to share out of this passage is this. That passionate worship flows from seeing God as great as he is. Passionate worship flows from seeing God as great as he is. One of the working definitions that we've discovered over the last couple of days in our classroom is that worship is a whole life of response of love to the self-revelation of God. I'll say that again. Worship is a whole life response of love to the self-revelation of God. Bob Coughlin, who is a worship leader in Kentucky, says this. Theology informs our minds to win our hearts so that we can love God more accurately and passionately. Theology informs our minds to win our hearts so that we can love God more accurately and passionately. Our desire for God and our response to God flows from our study of the greatness and the glory of God seen in the work at the cross in Jesus Christ. The trouble with us is that it's very easy for us to get our eyes off of what we should be thinking about and focusing on. Uh, We have a great tendency uh, to forget how great God is and to dethrone him and bring him down to a manageable size. The same thing is true in the opposite sense that we forget how dependent and frail we are and we exalt ourselves. Big problems. Here's what Tozer said about that very problem. He said, one of the ingredients in worship is boundless confidence in the character of God. He said, we can't worship these days because we do not have a high enough opinion of God. God's been reduced, modified, edited, changed and amended until he is not the God Isaiah saw and lifted up but something else, high and lifted up but something else. He said, if there's one terrible disease in the church writing in the late 1950s, it is that we do not see God as great as he is. Isn't that true? It's true in our own lives, it's true in our churches, it's true in our culture. Paul's theology is doxological, and his doxologies are theological. Paul was living in and out of the greatness of God in what Jesus Christ had done for us. And so we read these words in Psalm 145, why we're here. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts, talking about the greatness of God. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, he said, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I, as a response, he said, will declare your greatness. Theology fuels passionate worship. Passionate worship flows from seeing the greatness of God. Matt Redman wrote a song that some of you may have heard in years gone by. It really speaks this truth. Here's the words. It's called Seeing You. This is a time for seeing and singing. This is a time for breathing you in and breathing out praise. Our hearts respond to your revelation. All you're showing, all we have seen, commands a life of praise. Really just what Psalm 145 was saying. Redmond goes on to say, No one can sing of things they have not seen. God, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse, the glory of you. God, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse. The chorus says, Worship starts with seeing you. Our hearts respond to your revelation. And so we can see as leaders, how the ministries of worship in the local church need to be vitally connected to faithful, 
theological contemplation. People remember what they sing far longer and greater than what they hear. Someone has said, show me your song list and I will show you your church's theology. So the greatness of God inspires our worship. That's the second thing I want to share. And third is this, that passionate worship flows from an understanding of the glory of the cross or understanding the glory of the cross. And I want to illustrate this uh, to you um, by a quote in a, an illustration that C.S. Lewis gives. It's something he said that he realized when he was in a tool shed. He writes this, I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through a crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it, I saw that today in my room actually, coming through the curtains, was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, he said, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. The sunbeams of blessing in our lives are bright in and of themselves. They also give light to the ground where we walk. But, listen to this, there is a higher purpose for these blessings. God means for us to do more than stand outside them and admire them for what they are. Even more, he means to, for us to walk in them and to see the sun from which they come. He concludes, if the beams are beautiful, the sun is even more beautiful. God's aim is not that we merely admire his gifts, but even more, his glory. Looking along the beam to see the sun, the source of the blessings. John Piper comments on this illustration. He says this, concluding it. Now the point is that the glory of Christ manifest, especially in his death and resurrection, is the glory above and behind every blessing we enjoy. It's what Paul said. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Piper says, he purchased everything that's good for us. His glory is where the quest of our affections must end. Everything else is a pointer, a parable of this beauty. And so we sing songs of praise and worship informed theologically. When we sing, Lord, you are good, and the lines we sang this morning, we worship you for who you are. What do we mean by that? What what do we understand about the greatness and the glory of God when we sing for who you are, for who you are? Ephesians chapter 1. When we sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Do we sing it completely aware again of our complete bankruptcy apart from Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his, his being our hope? When we sing 10,000 reasons, when we sing you're rich in love and slow to anger, your name is great and your heart is kind. And then he says at the end of that verse, 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. When we sing those songs, are there 20 reasons? Are there 10? Are there five that are bursting in our heart as Paul burst with the doxology of his praises? He considered every spiritual blessing in Christ. The glory of the cross calls forth worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We can say, praise God from whom all blessings flow.